following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Fundamentals of Gnostic Mysticism. We are continuing a course we initiated a few weeks past about the foundations of Gnostic studies. Gnosticism as a tradition and as a means of practice of the application of specific methods for acquiring personal knowledge of divinity. Let us remember the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And as we've explained in previous lectures, this form of knowledge has had many names in different cultures. It has been known as marifah amongst the Sufis and the Muslims, the esotericists of Islam. It has been known as da'at in Hebrew amongst the Kabbalists of Israel. It has been known as Torah and Dharma. It is not simply a code of instructions given within scripture, but applies to psychological ways of being, psychological ways of behaving, of knowing. And as we explained previously, this wisdom of knowing divinity has been manifested in all religions, regardless of distinction. Delivered in accordance with the idiosyncrasies and the language the customs of a given people, whether through the prophet Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, etc. The teaching is the same. It is universal. How do we understand the inner obstacles within our psyche that prevent us from knowing God, Buddha, that intelligence or light known as Christ amongst the Gnostic Christians, which is an energy, not a person, But that energy can become particularized within any person who prepares themselves, who knows themselves fully. So this knowledge is personal, it is intimate. It is developed within oneself as a result of specific causes and conditions. By putting into effect certain methods, we learn to know divinity for ourselves. And therefore, we do not need to believe anything. Belief 
is a concept in the mind or a feeling in the heart that we think we know. We really identify with a certain tradition. We venerate a scripture, but yet we don't really know the depth of what that teaching explains. And why should not beings like Moses, who spoke face-to-face with God, or Buddha, who knew himself fully, or Jesus, who really propounded the heights of the divine regions of the Father, of the, of the Lord. If they can accomplish these things, how can we not? Therefore, to respect these individuals as persons who provided a teaching in history is beautiful. To venerate the masters of humanity is necessary, but we have to follow in their footsteps. We have, to, we have to imitate their example through practical works. Or as the Apostle James stated in the Bible, faith without works is dead. We must do. We must apply. And in the course of these lectures, we're explaining some of the traditional aspects of these different religions and the unifying principle behind them. But we also, in this uh, studies, talk about many exercises in order to know the truth for ourselves. One thing we will emphasize in this lecture and throughout this course are what are known as the four pillars of the Gnostic tradition. We speak of four foundations for studying Gnosis as a a doctrinal explanation of the different faiths and religions that have existed in the past. And these four pillars also apply to psychological ways of being. How do we know ourselves? These pillars are known as science, mysticism, art, and philosophy. We previously explained the three essential sciences of any genuine spiritual tradition. Known specifically with the names of Kabbalah, the mysticism of Judaism. Likewise, alchemy, the science of working with energy, of transforming base material into spiritual material, meaning transforming the lead of our personality into the gold of the spirit, into something divine, which we do by working with energies in our mind, our body, our heart. Lastly, we also spoke about psychology, which is a Greek teaching. How to unite psyche, the soul, with logos, the word. And if you remember the Bible, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The word in Greek is logos. Or the three logoi is the holy trinity of Christianity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Which are not people, but energies. And alchemy teaches us how to use divine forces that come from the Lord within us. And that we need to learn to become conscious of, to know how to use. So as to fuse the soul with God. And in Arabic, the word Allah kimia refers to the chemistry of God. How does the soul mix, unite, get lost, fuse with the divine intimately? And psychology is, of course, the mediator for that. And we also study our mind and the obstacles within us that prevent us from knowing that truth for ourselves. And with Kabbalah, uh, Hebrew science, is a map. It's a diagram. We talked about the tree of life and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is Kabbalah. 
symbolized in the book of Genesis. And that is a representation of the different levels and states of perception in books such as Tarot and Kabbalah, which we have available as a publication, we teach the study of uh, intimate glyph with ten spheres, mapping out the highest regions of perception, energy, consciousness, to the lowest levels of matter, energy, and perception as well. So we studied uh, Kabbalah in depth, and we are going to give many courses about how to study that diagram. But previously we introduced the concept that Kabbalah is a map of knowing our relationship with God. It's a type of diagram, a glyph, that can teach us things about our psyche. In this image, and in this discussion on the fundamentals of mysticism, we chose a a stained glass window of Jesus delivering the keys of the kingdom to Peter. And going back to our previous discussions on the study of alchemy, the holy keys held within the hand of the Lord, delivered unto Peter, precisely represent the science of alchemy. Alchemy is the work with transforming substances into other substances, in which the European uh, medieval alchemists were very much dedicated to. But we have to understand, as with many traditions, this is symbolic. It wasn't simply a literal attempt to get rich. Instead, it pertains to how do we transform our mind fundamentally. So the keys of the kingdom of God, which Jesus gives to Peter, one is gold, one is silver. And previously we discussed how a man and a woman within a matrimony, husband and wife, uniting together in sexual cooperation, in remembrance of God, those forces studied through the Buddhist tantras, teach us how to awake that fire of the creative sexual power in order to conserve and transform it, to take that energy, to raise it within oneself, up the spine, to the brain, and then to the heart, through certain energetic channels, which exist within a more subtle form within our physiology, and which yoga teaches very abundantly. And it is by working with, in a, in a marriage, that one can harness the most potent forces in the universe, in the cosmos. Because as a physical child can be created through man and wife, likewise husband and wife can take that very same power in order to give birth to the soul. And in this lecture, in our studies of mysticism, we'll talk about what are called three factors for obtaining genuine mystical achievements, mystical knowledge. But first, uh, with Peter, he is the one who receives the keys to the kingdom of the divine. And of course, we must emphasize that the Roman church was not founded by Peter, the Roman Catholic sect. Instead, he founded the Gnostic Universal Christian Catholic Church. Catholic simply means universal. But if we look symbolically into some names, we see that Rome, Roma, backwards, is amore, love. So the keys to the kingdom of love, of the divine realms of God, is between a husband and wife. And we'll be talking more about that aspect in relation to this lecture. And so let's talk a little bit more about what does mysticism really mean. It comes from the Greek mysterion, 
from the Greek main, which means to close one's eyes. And this refers to closing one's physical eyes to the external world and learning how to meditate, to go consciously within one's psyche in order to abandon the illusions of the senses and the attachments of the mind towards the external world, in order to go deep within our perception to let the body rest and for the soul to experience the, we could say, higher regions of the cosmos, higher dimensions, different um, levels of perception, which we taste partially when we have dreams. We can also transform that dream state into something conscious, something more vibrant, more aware. We can become awake within dreams where the body's asleep, the physical eyes are closed, and yet the soul is awake out of its physical vehicle. So meditation helps us to achieve that. And this is the study of dream yoga, dream science, awakening within dreams. We do that by attaining genuine mysticism, closing our physical eyes, and learning to perceive inside those realms, to not dream anymore, but to be awake in that state of being, to be conscious, to no longer project subjective things or to experience uh, in a very superficial manner that state of being. The word mystery also relates to mysticos, which means initiate. Someone who's begun a new way of life, who's transformed their way of being into something more profound, meaning to stop being inattentive, to be focused, to be aware as a soul of God for oneself, to be fully connected with God. And an initiate is a being, a person like Jesus, like Buddha, like Muhammad, like Krishna and Moses. These are individuals who fully knew God for themselves. They were fully awakened to their full potential as a human being. They were not asleep or unaware of their true calling or the immediate presence of God within them. So we state in these studies, we need to be aware, awake, attentive. The soul needs to know God. And we do that by learning to close our physical eyes to the illusions. Physical, but also psychological, in terms of the elements we carry within, which prevent us from knowing God, and which we'll be discussing in, in relation to psychology. Which is why Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, stated the following in a scripture called The Voice of the Silence. Before the soul can see, the harmony within must be attained and fleshly eyes be rendered blind to all illusion. So, mysticism is a discipline, a way that we train our mind. We train our psyche. We train ourselves to learn to be attentive. Buddhism speaks abundantly about this, to be mindful, aware of the body, aware of our thoughts, aware of our feelings. We need to learn to be concentrated fully in the present moment in which we find ourselves at all times. To not think of other things, to not be carried away by memory, but to be aware, whether it is in a lecture or in our daily job, such as when we're uh, engaged with our responsibilities. We need to be aware of what we do at all times. That's how the soul learns to see. We learn to become aware of deeper states of being, deeper connections with the divine within us.
And so Paul of Tarsus wrote in the chapter on Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, about the nature of a high teaching which has been given symbolically throughout the Christian scriptures and within certain schools of study, esoteric study, in which this is a, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago is a part. We are part of the Gnostic Church, founded by Jesus and ministered by his apostles. And so Paul of Tarsus, a great priest, we could say, of the Gnostic Church, explained the following about the nature of this hidden wisdom, which we need to know and to access. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God and a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So, contrary to mainstream religion, there is a hidden teaching. There's an esoteric science. There are practical methods we can act, use to access our personal knowledge of God. And of course, the beginning of that is mindfulness, awareness. Closing your physical eyes, learning to dedicate 10 minutes in the beginning, perhaps, maybe more, half an hour, an hour, in which we exclude all of our attention from the outside world and we go inside, observing our thoughts, our emotions, our impulses, our experience throughout the day, learning to reflect on our reactions to daily life, perhaps our negative qualities and what we can do to change them. This is the heart of the genuine mystical teachings of the Gnostics, changing who we are, learning about ourselves and what makes us suffer. And it is by learning to perceive what makes us suffer in which we can change and fundamentally know God. For the obstacles that prevent us from knowing the truth are in us. But likewise, the keys to knowing ourselves fully are within us. And so this knowledge of genuine mysticism is precisely that direct connection with God for ourselves and has been taught by many different teachers throughout humanity. So when I speak of mindfulness, it is not simply contingent to the Buddhist religion. But you find that in Sufism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, Christianity, the Old Testament, etc., and we'll be talking about some of the many similarities between these faiths. Manly P. Hall, a great uh, Western esotericist, famous author of many um, books in the English language, explained and emphasized that there has always been a secret school of mystical wisdom that has been given, whether through Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, etc., towards humanity, and that this knowledge of knowing the truth and knowing ourselves for, uh, intimately has been given um, in secret. This type of knowledge was never given openly due to its power. The ability to transform who we are and to know God is a terrible weapon, which, if we use consciously, can help transform our psyche and transform how we help others benefit and to let God guide us within to the benefit of others where our actions truly represent the qualities of God stemming from inside and manifesting to the external 
So this knowledge was underground precisely because humanity has not been capable of understanding this mystical science. But Manly P. Hall uh, and many other authors, whether from Blavatsky, um, current writings such as by Samael and Vior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, uh, have been giving instructions and opening up the doors to this teaching for the first time. Manly P. Hall emphasized the following, that there is an incontrovertible mass of evidence indicating the existence of initiated philosophers possessing a superior knowledge of divine and natural laws. There is also sufficient proof that these initiates, or mystics, were the agents of a world fraternity or brotherhood of adepts that has existed from the most remote time. This over-fraternity has been called the philosophic empire, the great school, the college of the Holy Spirit, and the invisible government of the world. References to this sovereign body of the ancient ones of the earth occur in the sacred writings, the philosophical literature, and the mystical traditions of all races and nations of mankind. We have referred to the stream of the secret doctrine as humanism. This term, or the term, is not used in its popular sense, but to describe the grand program of the mystery schools for the emancipation of man from bondage to ignorance, superstition, and fear. So he, Manly P. Hall called this humanism, the quality of being human. And the word human in Sanskrit comes from whom, spirit, and manas, which means mind. A mind, which is us, the terrestrial person, that is fully united with the spirit, with God. So a real human being is a Jesus, a Buddha, a master who fully knows themselves. And God is fully present in every action, word, and deed of their very being. So there are many masters who are part of this fraternity and who are helping humanity secretly and publicly. The term humanism, of course, perhaps is applicable to the writings of Manly P. Hall, but we call this knowledge gnosis, Gnosticism, which is the very knowledge of how we overcome our own lack of cognizance of God, our ignorance, uh, the superstitions of fundamentalist thinking, and also the fears that afflict us on a daily basis. This secret knowledge was known in the Middle East, as I mentioned, as marifah, which in Arabic means gnosis, knowledge. We explained in a course we gave recently on Sufism, the many sacred teachings of the Quran, which of course, in a literal sense, in a public way, a literal interpretation, this is something dogmatic and, we could say, detrimental to humanity. To look at scripture from a literal standpoint, that, as we emphasize, that one must kill the unbelievers, as is so famously propagated in this tradition. Psychologically speaking, what the Sufis talked about, what the Muslims talked about, as the unbelievers are not outside, but inside. Our anger is an unbeliever, does not want to follow God. Our prejudices, which cloud our understanding, our anger, which wants us to harm and afflict pain on those we love, that element, psychologically speaking, does not believe in God, only wants to act on its own will. Likewise with fear, lack of confidence, any negative psychological quality does not belong to God, but is our own creation, and which prevents us from knowing the truth. And the Quran says you must fight against this inside yourself, 
you cannot accuse and blame someone outside of your tradition. To be an unbeliever doesn't mean to not follow Islam. It means to not submit to God within ourselves. And we explained that Islam in Arabic means submission to God. We submit to God through our actions, our psychological ways of being. And so in the Quran, which is a beautiful text if we know how to read it, emphasizes that there is an allegorical teaching in that scripture. It is not meant to be read at the dead letter in many cases. As it says in the Surah Al-Imran, verse 7, He it is who has sent down to thee the book. In it are verses basic or fundamental of established meaning. They are the foundation of the book. Others are allegorical. But those in whose hearts is perversity follow the part thereof that is allegorical, seeking discord and searching for its hidden meanings. But no one knows its hidden meanings except Allah. Or you could say our inner Buddha, our inner God, the inner Christ, etc. And those who are firmly grounded in knowledge, or gnosis, say, We believe in the book, if the whole of it is from our Lord, and none will grasp the message except men of understanding. So whether it be the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the sutras, the tantras, the Buddhist teachings, etc., we will gain nothing if we approach it from a literal standpoint. Because the language of the Judeo-Christian Bible and the Quran are symbolic, allegorical, philosophical. We can't read it at the dead letter. Because that dead letter is what kills the soul. Yet behind the letter, if we know how to read, gives us the spirit, gives us genuine knowledge of ourselves. And so these prophets and teachers in the past gave Gnosis, this knowledge, allegorically, in a hidden way. So that those who were educated and knew how to read could interpret those scriptures accurately. And the other people who were not trained or initiated into their school, they would uh, either blindly follow it or would uh, not get, get its message because that teaching had to be kept in secret to preserve its, its purity. So many people ask, what is genuine mysticism? And we discuss a lot in this teachings the Gnostic Gospels as given in the Apocrypha, as well as the different uh, non-canonical texts which have recently come out in the past few decades. But as you can see, we talk about all religions. One thing I'd like to emphasize about the nature of mysticism primarily relates to the Gospel of Thomas. When students ask, what is genuine mystical knowledge? What does it mean to know God? What are the fundamentals? What are the primary steps that we can engage with to know the truth so that the truth can set us free? We have the following scripture uh, where Yeshua, Jesus, or better said, that intelligence known as Christ, manifested through Jesus of Nazareth, stated the following. Know what is in front of your face, and what is hidden from you will be disclosed. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Meaning, be mindful, be awake, be attentive as a consciousness. Be aware of what is going on in the mind, what is going on in our heart, what is going on with our body? What is going on with our surroundings? To be mindful and attentive. To be aware. And so his students asked him and said to him, Do you want us to fast? How should we pray? Should we give to charity? What diet should we observe? And many people who approach religion ask these questions. What are the ritual preliminaries? What are the exercises that I need to do to be spiritual? What do we need to do on a practical basis to change? And so Jesus 
broke it down very simply. No matter what religion we're from, what faith we follow, the important thing is this. Do not lie and do not do what you hate. All things are disclosed before heaven. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Nothing covered that will remain undisclosed. So do not lie and do not do what you hate. Meaning in a moment of conflict with a loved one or a coworker, we feel anger and we want to speak with resentment, with anger, with pride. And we know, we feel remorse and know in that moment, I know I should not say this thing. And yet we fail to act on that conscience, that small voice that tells us what's right and what's wrong. And yet we say the wrong thing, we cause a problem, we cause a conflict with this situation, and a chain of events cycle and process as a result of our mistaken action, and we create pain. And then afterward, we may feel that uh, pain, morally speaking, that we knew we did something wrong. Therefore, do not do what you hate. Act on the voice of conscience, which you sense in your very core being to be right action, right thinking, right feeling, and right doing. Because all things are disclosed before God. God is aware of all things. Our inner divinity knows all. And therefore, we need to act upon that conviction and knowledge that we are held accountable for our very words and what effects we produce upon, upon human beings. And that is the essence of mysticism. And we see in this image Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane where very diligently he was preparing for his passion, his crucifixion which is another symbolic teaching about the path we need to follow individually. So he prayed in the garden, similar to the Garden of Eden, preparing for tremendous suffering, tremendous ordeals and conflicts, which if we follow in the light and the footsteps of Jesus, we too must face certain ordeals, certain conflicts. And in that struggle with ourselves, battling against our own defects, our fear and pride and anger, those unbelievers we remember, do not lie and do not do what you hate and know to be wrong. And fundamentally, we will be aided by the truth. And so, very simply, Jesus explained in the Gospel of Matthew a very famous teaching about the Sermon on the Mount, explaining precisely the difficulty of obtaining genuine reunion with God. And many Christians repeat this teaching by memory. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, meaning spiritual life, and, few, and those who find it are few. To be one of the few does not mean to simply believe in Christianity, to believe in the, uh, the Christian church, the Catholics, or even the Gnostic church. It means to change who we are fundamentally, psychologically. Do we decide to improve our psychological state of mind to transform our very being into something spiritual so that every action and engagement with life is done with awareness, with kindness, with compassion to humanity? Or do we act on our negative qualities? Do we obey the the bad conscience or the bad voice which which is the devil on one shoulder telling us to indulge in that habit indulge in desire to do things for oneself and to act in a way that is going to harm others and one does not need to be a a criminal to realize this dichotomy between well 
should I behave in this way or should I not? The voice of conscience is what leads the soul towards that narrow path, that straight gate, which is not entered by raising one's hand and saying, I believe in Jesus. One is not saved simply by thinking and feeling that one is one with God. One has to be united through practical works, through discipline, through change, by becoming really mystical, becoming aware of how our mind, our emotions, perhaps delude us, what mistakes we make, and how to change them. And by entering that straight path within ourselves, that difficult process of change, we become initiates. As I mentioned, initiation is related to the word mysticos, mysterion, mystery. We've included an image of the sacred tarot, the Egyptian cards associated with, uh, sadly in these times, associated with many forms of divination which have been divorced from their more deeper spiritual significance. The tarot cards are related with the Hebraic tradition, the Kabbalistic tradition. Tarot relates to Torah and Judaism. Each card, the major cards of this deck are 22, and each are associated with a Hebraic letter of the alphabet of Kabbalah. So we included this image of the first card, which is called the Magician. And this is the card of initiation, the card that begins all spiritual life. We have represented in this glyph a man pointing with his right hand down towards the earth and his left hand holding a magic wand towards the air. This magician is our own inner divinity. And the word magician comes from the Indo-European word, which means mag or priest. So a priest or priestess is a magician, someone who works with all the energies of our interior and gives it to God, who knows how to obey the will of God and use that power from divinity to help others. That's magic. It doesn't mean pulling rabbits out of a hat and many other very silly things. To be a practical magician is to be a, a spiritual being, an initiate, someone who knows the, the divine. In this card, uh, we won't explain all the intricacies of this glyph, but he's pointing with his right hand towards the earth and his left hand is facing up indicating that if you want to ascend to the higher regions of the divine, if you want to know the truth, you must first of all descend, confront all of your negativity, all of your impurity, all of your defects, and eliminate them so that you can rise up towards the truth. For as the book of Isaiah states, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill laid low. This is a reference to the, this card. And initiation, we can say from the dictionary, means formal admission or acceptance into a club, a group, and an adult status within one's community, whether in Judaism it's through a bar mitzvah, uh, many other ceremonies or rites of initiation, or quinceañeras in Spanish, or uh, Latin American culture. Initiation refers to the act of initiating or being brought into this group. Now, people think this term only applies to physical attendance to a school or being indoctrinated into a culture of a spiritual type. The real meaning is that initiation, as Samael in VR states, is our own life, lived intensely, with rectitude, and with love, and with love. So many people want to be a Freemason or enter a church to be a part of a certain society or group, 
And that's beautiful. It's necessary. Every community needs its own leaders, its own doctrines, its teachings, and its own harmony. And to disrupt that is to cause tremendous suffering for those people. And it's wrong to want to create division in certain spiritual groups, which certain people have attempted. But the real meaning of initiation is how do we change who we are so that our soul can vibrate at a higher way of being, a higher way of knowing, so that we are initiated into a culture related to gods, angels, Buddhas, masters. When we learn to change our fundamental position in life from a psychological standpoint, we remove the impurities of the soul, our, the, the lead that weighs us down in suffering, we can in turn elevate ourselves to the golden regions of God. And that's the mystery of alchemy. We in turn change our life. Our life becomes initiation. And then for we become fully knowledgeable about and speak directly face-to-face with those beings that achieve that state of perfection. We can do that when the body's asleep, the soul abandons the physicality, and enters into the dream state. And then we can communicate with those angels, those beings, like Moses did, like Buddha did, or uh, Jesus, etc. But first, we have to change our daily life, where we're at, this physical body. This is where we start. We have to change our life intensely, living it intensely. doesn't mean uh, doing drugs or doing something um, (coughs) intensely, like engaging in dangerous sports or things like that. To live intensely refers to a psychological way of being in which we are consciously working to be attentive, active as a soul. And in moments of crisis and conflict, we learn to act with ethics, with, I wouldn't say morals, but I would say with a conscious sense of right and wrong. Morals relates to dogma, belief. And we know that what's wrong in one country is acceptable in another. That's not the type of ethics we refer to. Morals belong to time, but ethics is a code of being, a, co- a way of acting that relates to our connection with God and how we help others and create harmony within society. That's ethics or rectitude. Rectitude is our, our path of spiritual discipline. So likewise, we live intensely with rectitude and love. And as Jesus taught in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In this statement is condensed a very deep and elaborate teaching about the three aspects of mysticism, which we're going to explain in detail. If any man would follow after me, let him deny himself. Let him confront all of his impurity within him. Let him, let him die to his own individual egotistical desires so that the soul can be given birth, so that the soul can resurrect within us. And take up his cross daily. That cross refers to precisely the two keys we talked about, the gold and the silver keys of Peter, which the cross is a symbol of the union of man and woman. The vertical phallus, the horizontal uterus, together form the cross which Jesus died upon, meaning he showed with his life how we as a soul need to use that very same power to die in our own egotism, 
that energy that can give life can destroy the impurities of the soul so that the soul can resurrect into a new life. And then to follow me, that means to do good deeds, to help others, live by his good example. And so we talk about in the path of initiation, a reference to what would I call three factors. The three factors for genuine mystical knowledge refer to birth, death, and sacrifice. As represented in this quote, let him deny himself, let him die to his own self-will so that his will can be one with the divine. Likewise, to take up that cross is to give birth to the soul, which is achieved between a man and woman, husband and wife. With those two energies of a man and a woman together, instead of creating physical life, we can create the soul, as I mentioned. And then to follow him is to sacrifice for humanity, to do good deeds, to sacrifice our own comforts in order to act and work in favor of humanity. So mystical birth refers to the teachings given by Jesus to Nicodemus, which, if you're familiar with the Judeo-Christian Bible, this is a very important uh, piece that establishes the teachings of the church, whether Gnostic or um, according to the Catholic Church, which misappropriated this knowledge. He talks about the need to be born again. And many people think that to be born again is to simply raise one's hand, as I mentioned. I believe in, I believe in Jesus, and therefore I am saved. But birth does not occur as a result of thinking, of wanting something intellectually, or desiring something with the heart. Birth is produced when a man and woman unite sexually and they give birth with that energy to a child, that's birth. Just as, it, as you have a physical child engendered through that act by learning to conserve that very power between a, between a husband and wife in a marriage, that energy can give birth to our very spiritual essence. Which is why Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 3, verses 5-8, through eight, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So, that which is born of the flesh, meaning when husband and wife copulate, they give birth to a child. That's of the flesh. But through that very same sexual act, if the husband and wife know the secret of conserving that seminal power, those waters of life, and transforming it into light, spiritual, fire, essence, consciousness, then that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there is a physical way to engender a child, but also that act can engender God within the spirit. And of course, Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was teaching him at the time, even being a very well-educated rabbi, a mystical teacher of Judaism. He says, how can... uh, how can I be born again? How could I re-enter my mother's womb a second time in order to be born again? And Jesus was, of course, speaking in allegories. But people who are very intellectual are read dead letter and don't understand the philosophical meaning of the teaching. Which is why Jesus says, Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again, spiritually. And the wind bloweth where it listeth, 
and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And of course, the teachings of mystical birth are the rites of baptism, so popularized within the Christian faith. To be baptized by water is to take the very sexual creative potential which are in our physical uh, organs, sexual organs, and to transform those waters into energy through certain exercises of meditation, of tantrism, of working as a couple. Those waters can be conserved, transformed into the wine of the Spirit. For if you remember Jesus' first miracle, He transformed water into wine. That wine wasn't simply to get a, a group of people drunk. It refers to the wine of the Spirit, psychological superior states of being. Those waters were transformed precisely in a marriage. So husband and wife can take that very seminal power, the semen, the matter, and instead of expelling it, by conserving it and transforming it through the sexual act in a state of ritual purity, in a state of love, divine love, that energy can rise up the spine, up certain energetic channels in the back, towards the brain. And that energy, that fire, illuminates the mind. Instead of engendering a child, that power can go within our very center of our psyche, rejuvenating our organs, our physicality, as well as certain lightened psychological capacities. And you see, that Jesus was illuminated by this halo, and all the prophets and masters had that, Im- have that image, where their mind is fully illuminated with light, with power. That's because they knew this mystery of baptism, where they learned to work with the waters of life within them. And those waters can be uh, a source of rejuvenation for us if we transform it, if we use it consciously. And so those who are born of the Spirit, they're like the wind. You cannot know where they come from or where they go. Because psychologically speaking, the, the superior state of, the, of a master, of an angel, of a Buddha, is very hard to comprehend because their consciousness is fully awake and our mind typically very terrestrial, limited. And we try to understand these great beings, it's very difficult. But if we learn to fulfill these three factors within ourselves, we can come to know their, their uh, genuine mysteries. We've included an excerpt from the Gospel of Thomas, precisely elaborating on the point of spiritual birth. Where he talks specifically about the nature and the need to become like a child, innocent, pure. doesn't mean to become naive, be as little as children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't refer to becoming uh, juvenile, simplistic. But psychologically speaking, this parable refers to a state of purity and innocence that we lost when physically we were children. But likewise, through our own transgressions, through different uh, existences, different events in our life. So Yeshua saw some babies nursing. He said to his students, these nursing babies are like those who enter the kingdom. They said to him, then shall we enter the kingdom as babies? And of course, you look at these interchanges in dialogue where people read Jesus literally. 
They're, they can't understand what he's getting at. He's like the, he's the spirit, uh, spiritual being, like the wind, constantly moving, giving insight. Very dynamic. But of course, people who are very literal and intellectual d- miss the meaning. And in this quote, he explains precisely the mysteries of alchemy, a fusing with God. When husband and wife unite sexually in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua said to them, when you make the two into one, meaning man and wife, when they unite, and when you make the inner like the outer, and the outer like the inner, and the upper like the lower. And what is the upper and the lower? Well, when husband and wife are copulating, the husband could be on top, the woman below. And when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male will not be male, nor the female be female. And when you make eyes in place of an eye, and of course this refers to Mayin, the mysteries of uh, Gnostic mysticism, closing one's physical eyes to illusion, developing spiritual insight, precisely through a matrimony. And when you make a hand in place of a hand, a foot in place of a foot, meaning your actions are no longer from below, from our own personal desires, but from God. Likewise, an image in place of an image, meaning our self-image. Who do we see ourselves as? Are we simply uh, terrestrial, or do we have a divine identity? Which we do, but we need to realize that. To replace that Im- our self-image with the image of God, who is within. Then you will enter the kingdom. It's a very famous teaching, uh, at least disseminated amongst Gnostic circles. When you make the male and female into one, where the male is no longer male, nor the female female. Because when a man and woman are together, they cease being just man and wife. In uh, Hebrew, the sacred name of God is Jehovah. And that word Jehovah relates precisely to this dynamic. Jehovah comes from the Hebrew Yah Chava. Yah is masculine, the father. Chava, or Eve, you say, is the wife, the woman. So Jehovah is the union of both man and woman. The power of God, of Jehovah, is within a husband and wife. And where they unite, man is no longer man, nor woman, woman. Because those forces are active, and there you have an uh, androgynous being. A divine being, which, if those forces are contained, can create life spiritually. But if they are expelled, we're kicked out of Eden, the garden, represented by the book of Genesis. And this is precisely the great battle that any aspirant of Gnostic mysticism faces. Which is why Jesus taught a beautiful, uh, gave a beautiful teaching to the woman at the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. Or a woman who was known to have slept with many men approached Jesus at this well. And their conversation reached the point in which this woman asked, or first Jesus asked for water. Where after this woman uh, learned from Jesus about the waters of life, about a water springing up from one's belly, up inward to everlasting life, which relates to the sexual energy, the creative force of love. And likewise, she says, 
will give me of this water that will give me eternal life spiritually. And of course, Jesus says, very enigmatically, approach, bring thy husband. You want to know the mysteries of the divine life? Bring your husband. For a woman, have a husband. For a husband, have a wife. So, of course, this is between the lines. It was never given explicitly. But now that we talk about it in a very detailed manner, it's very obvious. And the teachings of circumcision relate to this process. And of course, in Judaism, uh, in Christianity, and especially Islam, uh, young males are, are practiced the rite of circumcision, which is the cutting of the foreskin of the phallus, which was a tradition in which a tradition that was meant to help uh, young men that when they finally got married, they were not, uh, in the sexual act, were not so stimulated by the, the physicality of the act itself and the stimulation of the phallus within the uterus in order that so that energy becomes so powerful that one loses control, that energy is expelled. The foreskin represents animality. The sexual act can become can be something animal of desire, of instinct, of passion. Or if we cut the animality from that act, it can be something divine, spiritual, creative, in which God can act through us. So the physical rite of circumcision was uh, meant to be something useful so that when a husband united with his wife, the foreskin would not stimulate the phallus so much in which he lost control of his energy in which he would have an ejaculation and would lose that power. Instead, these practitioners wanted to conserve that energy, to not waste it, to not reach the orgasm, to not expel it, to create a physical child. Instead, they wanted to create a spiritual child. So cutting the foreskin was an ancient rite of Abraham associated with this. But also symbolically, it refers to how we remove our own animal passions from the sexual act. Which is why his students said to him, is circumcision useful or not? And he did say, if it were useful, fathers would produce children already circumcised from their mothers. Because you notice many men who have, who have been circumcised, they don't know these mysteries. And therefore, when they have sex, they do it for sex, animal pleasure and to reach the orgasm. And that's all they think about. But here in these studies, we're teaching something more profound, something very different. So if physical circumcision was the end-all, be-all, well, it would produce the results we want, but physical circumcision doesn't matter, which is why Jesus says the true circumcision in spirit is altogether valuable. Meaning, we no longer approach our wife, if we are a husband, with lust. Instead, we venerate that being with divine love. And we no longer treat the sexual act as something culminating in a moment of pleasure which depletes the psyche, depletes the mind, and depletes the heart. Which is why Yeshua said, how miserable is the body that depends on a body, and how miserable is the soul that depends on both. Meaning to be fully thinking about, excuse me, thinking and rationalizing and conceptualizing and daydreaming about having sex constantly. But sex without any type of love or respect for the other. For one's partner. Which is why in the book of Hebrews it states, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, 
but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So the bed defiled refers to the couple culminating with the orgasm, defiling in themselves. And the Leviticus in the Old Testament refers specifically to the processes, processes and rituals associated with ritual cleansing as a result of having that, gone through that act. But of course, the work of removing the animal within is the work of mystical death, which is the second factor for genuine mysticism. As I mentioned to you, upon the cross, within a marriage, we can fully eliminate all of our defects, all of our faults. But of course, this is a very painful process, and not many that, not one that many follow. Jesus lived this teaching with his life, and he chose to physically represent with his crucifixion something we need to do on a daily basis, not to be crucified physically, but psychologically, we crucify our own desires, our own egotism, our hatred, etc. And to emphasize the symbolic representation of this act, we'll quote in brief the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 33 to 37. And when they came unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, They gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Uriarum. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The word Inri, written above the cross, representing this Latin inscription, can also be interpreted in different ways, in forms of sacred sounds, or we could say mantra. Inri also represents ignis natura renovatur integra. Fire renews nature incessantly. So what is that fire? The fire of the burning bush that illuminates precisely the tree of life that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. Likewise, this fire is this creative sexual energy, which when husband and wife are together, they are inflamed with love, with power. And that power can be used for God to eliminate desire, defects. Inri also represents, in neches renascor integra, in death I am reborn intact and pure. So our own desires can die on that precisely through between a husband and wife, which of course is the most ultimate ordeal for any couple, for any person in spiritual life. To learn how to reconciliate and love and to give selflessly. And it is by working with that energy we can remove the impurities. And once the soul is fully purified, when all desire and ego, egotism, defect is eliminated, the soul can resurrect can fully give birth. And in the Gospel of Thomas, we have the emphasis of the animal within, as we've been discussing. We need to remove and eliminate the animal within our psyche. Our defects like anger, pride, 
hatred are, are animalistic. These are animal qualities. These are not human qualities. A human being that is fully one with God does not have anger. Sometimes people say that God has a sense of wrath, but God has force, but not anger. Anger is something we project onto our understanding of God. Instead, we say that uh, the animal, like these defects, pride, fear, is about self-preservation. Me, myself, who I am, my benefit, what I want, what I need, and ignores the other. And we know in this society, this is a civilization of eat or be eaten. And so Yeshua said, blessings on the lion if a human eats it, making the lion human. Foul is a human if a lion eats it, making the lion human. So what is this lion? When we are full of great distress, great vexation, wrath, we are an animal. We don't reason. We only want to cause pain. And therefore, in those moments, that lion is eating our divine potential. It's devouring us. But if we control that lion and we conquer it, we can transform that bestial energy into something pure. And that's the mystery of alchemy. We transform that which is subjective, negative, detrimental, into something conscious, divine, and pure. That is the path of death. And of course, it's very painful. The Muslims refer to this as jihad, striving. It doesn't mean holy war. There's many words in Arabic for holy war, but the word mujahidah means to strive, to fight. And this fight occurs within. When we confront everything that is wrong with us and change it. And of course, there's a great battle represented in the Old Testament by Jacob struggling with an angel, if you're familiar with that myth, where he's fighting hand-to-hand combat with uh, an angel in the book of Genesis, I believe. That's a symbol of fighting with that power of God, which we use in an animal way. That energy of, of the creative sexual potential is from divinity, comes from God. But sadly, we use it in an animalistic way to procreate physically. Therefore, the animal, that, that lion, eats us in that act. If we give in to lust, that animal devours us. But if we learn to conquer the animal within, restrain our body, mind, and heart, we can transform that lion into something human, divine. Now, of course, this path is precisely a great sacrifice, which is why many beings do not follow it. It is very arduous and painful. So we talked about the teachings of mystical birth and mystical death the path of denying oneself, and the path of giving birth to the soul. Lastly, Jesus said, follow me. And this is sacrifice for humanity. Sacrifice for humanity refers to what we do to help others. How do we serve others selflessly? How do we give based upon our potential, based upon our psychological disposition, our gifts, our good qualities? How do we use what is in our skill and ability to genuinely help others? Now, Jesus, of course, taught with his life this doctrine. And, of course, the highest sacrifice one can give is to teach this kind of knowledge, how to help people change. And personally, this is something that I do uh, because not because I wanted to personally, but because I've had the experience when speaking to beings like Jesus about what I need to do to serve humanity and 
pay my debts. So this is something that I engage with as a result of what my inner divinity has instructed me to do. So sacrifice for humanity can occur in many ways. It doesn't mean that one has to become a priest or a missionary to disseminate a type of teaching like this. We have to find our own ways of giving to others and according with our dispensation. We give based on what are we capable of and what can we do to really help others. But of course, this is a very painful process too because egotistically our mind doesn't like to focus on the will of others, the needs of others. Instead, it wants to give to itself constantly. So it's a sacrifice. We have to fulfill what is called a sacred office, which is where the word sacrifice comes from. And of course, it always involves pain to some degree. And Jesus, again, represented this with his life. He stated uh, precisely the missionary aspect of this type of sacrifice in the following Gospel of Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. So sacrifice for humanity means to go fishing, you could say. Fishing for people. To help assist them in whatever way we can. And to really give from our heart, from our capacity, from divine love, from compassion. When we see that someone suffers outside of us, who really deserves and needs help. And especially even if they don't deserve that help, we give it anyways. Because we like to say, ah, that person wronged me. They don't deserve my compassion. And yet, that's precisely the egotism we need to struggle against, in which you find that perhaps at work, I know I have a work situation where I'm teaching kids. I'm a middle school teacher, in which I deal with students who are very problematic, can be very confrontational, very aggressive, very negative. And yet, I've found that by being able to restrain my own sense of pride and self-esteem and to speak with kindness and peace towards this other person who may be causing a problem in my classroom, that has diffused situations that would have escalated. Peace is what establishes equilibrium within any social environment. If we are angry, we perpetuate the wheel of pain. If we are at peace, like a sword, we cut through that chain and we totally disable the situation. Which is why the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition stated, kindness is a much more crushing force than anger. You can unmask traitors with love, with compassion, and you disarm people with kindness. And we have to verify that and experience that in order to, and to work for it because it doesn't come in the beginning very easily. We have to fight for it. But when we find that this way of being is much more superior than acting on our own egotism, we see that this becomes our foundation and what we strive to fulfill every day, every moment. Which is why Samael and Vior stated that we have to really concentrate on the effects of our actions and not think about our intentions. We may intend to do good, but the ego is all intention. It wants for itself, and yet the results are disastrous. 
our own self-will has intentions, perhaps, <clears throat> excuse me, are benefiting others, but, and yet, we have to consciously observe what are the effects if we act in certain ways. Which is why he says the results are always that which speak. It serves no purpose to have good intentions if the results are disastrous. And love is, doesn't mean sentimentalism, hallmark cards, or superficiality. It refers to the love that a being like Jesus gave for humanity, selflessly, where he was beaten, sped upon, crucified, and yet he only said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Love is the law, but conscious love. Not love for ourselves, our own self-love, but love for the other being, regardless of whether we benefit or not. That's the type of divine love we need when we sacrifice for others, depending on whatever our vocation is. And so the path of sacrifice specifically relates to missionary work, how we sow the seeds of kindness to others, and how we fish in the rivers of life, looking for people who will want to be spiritual, who will want to change. In the Gospel of Thomas, verses 8 through 9, we have an elaboration on the previous points. And he said, Jesus said, Humankind is like a wise fisherman who cast his net into the sea and drew it up from the sea full of little fish. Among the fish he found a fine large fish. He threw all the little fish back into the sea and easily chose the large fish. Whoever has ears to hear should hear. And you find this in the Gospels quite frequently. Let he who has an understanding know. As the Quran says, only those with direct knowledge of God will know the meaning of the scriptures. Let he who is initiated understand this teaching. And so, in terms of this, in terms of this fishing of men, he's referring to how when Jesus was teaching, he had mil- thousands of people listening to his, his sermons, and yet only a few really practiced what he taught. Likewise, with this kind of knowledge, which we were unveiling. So Jesus chose the large fish, meaning the, the people who have some depth, who really are going to change themselves, who are going to be transform who they are, and do so in a very serious way. Yeshua said, and the following parable is the famous parable of the sower, which people read literally, of course, but represents how this type of knowledge is being disseminated, spread, and taught. Look, the sower went out and took a handful of seeds and scattered them. And he emphasizes how some of these seeds will be destroyed, meaning some people will benefit, some people will listen, some people will take it seriously and most likely to change. And other people will either debate or argue, such as with the the following verses, as I'll explain. Some fell on the road and the birds came and picked them up. Others fell on rock and they did not take root in the soil and did not produce heads of grain. Others fell on thorns and they choked the seeds and worms devoured them. And others fell on good soil, and it brought forth a good crop, yielding 60 per measure and, 100, and 120 per measure. So the seeds of knowledge which are being disseminated. Some fell on the road, and the birds ate them. The birds represent to, symbolically the thought, where one's perhaps philosophy or thinking looks at this teaching as well, and perhaps rejects it, 
devours it, destroys it. Others fell on rock and they did not take root, meaning when Jesus was teaching to, his, to really thousands of people, some people were very hardened psychologically. They were, had no remorse. They wouldn't want to change anyways. So therefore, they lost this opportunity to, to learn from the Christ. Others fell on thorns, meaning criticism, slander. And you see in the life of any prophet, they're surrounded by critics and condemned. So these are the very people who crowned him with thorns, so to speak. And then others fell on good soil, meaning those who, want, who freely feel in their heart that they want to change fundamentally to become genuine mystics. And the number 60 plus 120 relates to the Kabbalistic teachings, the numerical uh, science of Hebraism. And we talked in brief previously about how numbers represent certain qualities and certain teachings of a very profound depth, which we'll be elaborating on in other lectures. But when you look at Kabbalah, look at numbers in the Bible, they represent archetypes, symbols. As, as with the first card of the Tarot we looked at, number one. Likewise, these numbers relate to other teachings, other principles. 60 plus 120, <clears throat> excuse me, adds to 180. And in Kabbalah, you take these numbers, you break it down, you add the sum of the digits. 1 plus 8 plus 0 equals 9. And as we talked previously, the number 9 is very important in the Bible. 9 relates in Kabbalah to what is called the sphere of Yesod, which in Hebrew means foundation, the rock that Jesus builds his church. That rock, Yesod, in Freemasonry is, that, is the cubic stone upon which we build our church, the church of Rome, the church of Amore, a love. That stone is the creative energy in its depth. The teachings of alchemy, how to use the creative power of sex for something divine. And the Muslims refer to that stone as the Kaaba, which is the stone they circumambulate around during Hajj pilgrimage. And that stone is black in us. It has to be purified, make, become white in the Muslim tradition. So in synthesis, we'll be uh, explaining in the future lectures about the teachings of the other pillars of Gnosis. We talked about mysticism in depth. Previously, we talked about psychology. And our next lecture will be dedicated to art. Science and mysticism, as well as art and philosophy, are integral. These are not something separate. We're discussing things in a very didactic way to emphasize certain principles, which are important to know. But we know that science in its real depth the, te- the process of experimentation, of verification, is mystical in depth. And likewise, it's philosophical. The language of the parables of the Bible have allegorical meanings, philosophical meanings. And these teachings have been given in, amongst many great artists of humanity, like Beethoven, Wagner, Mozart, Chopin, Liszt, many classical composers. The pyramids of Egypt and Yucatan verify and teach spiritual principles. And everything we've explained in this lecture about mysticism will elaborate upon in certain forms of art as we see whether amongst the Egyptians, the Aztecs and Maya, or the Sufis. And lastly, we'll be talking about uh, the nature of philosophy, especially from the West, but also amongst India, especially. you have any questions? Um, you mentioned uh, the appearance of angels in the New Testament. And 
Uh, is that allegorical as well? So when, when someone sees an angel or is confronted by an angel, that's them looking inward and hearing the right voice? Yes. Uh, the angel, uh, such as with Jacob struggling against an angel, was not something historical specifically. People think the Bible is a historical text, but it refers to something psychological. The Hebraic Kabbalists write in the Zohar that the angel that Jacob wrestled with was Samael. And as you see in the writings we have available, the author is Samael on Veor. He was the terrestrial person of the angel Samael. And the angel Samael is the god of war, known as Ares or Mars in uh, Roman and Greek myth. And Samael is precisely a force, an angel, a being who exists uh, in the, right now in the superior dimensions. He was physically incarnated and wrote many books to teach this science. And the Zohar talks about how Jacob wrestled with this energy, or this angel, which represents the strength of sex, sexual energy, the sexual power. Because the, the very force that can give life to our full potential to help transform us into a perfect human being, into an angel, is precisely within our sexual organs. And the Bible, of course, has been edited throughout many centuries, lost this. But the Zohar and many other scriptures have a tradition that emphasized some of the allegorical meaning that was associated with the Bible that was extirpated. But when Jacob fights with the angel, it's talking about how we as a soul have to wrestle with our own the powers that exist within us as a spiritual fight. And of course, in the Bible, Jacob, when he's wrestling, he breaks his thigh. His thigh gets dislocated. And of course, the thigh is near the sexual organs. And um, there's many other teachings associated with that too, but uh, we find that the, those stories are not literal. And people who read them literally are children. They don't, they don't, they don't really see the, the, uh, the adult material there the spiritual material that is really profound. Um, when I was, before I met you and started doing this, I was studying like uh, occultism, whether it be manly pihal, light occultism, or dark occultism. The more you delve into it, you delve into it, you delve into it, it's all from within. It's all the stuff that's going on in the universe or in the world is all going on within. That being said, one thing I've noticed is when you do the shadow work and you start working on yourself and start like breaking down barriers of things you don't like about yourself, the more you get attacked. Yeah. Okay. So meaning it's like negative emotion. Well, or or whatever I don't know, real entities or whatever. The more you try, the more you're gonna you know it's gonna be harder. And that's you. the that's where, the battle of the devil. Whereas yeah, I know that's the I know. Um, but if you ever saw, if you guys ever saw the movie The Matrix, and they said you, you could either take the red pill or the blue pill, and you know why? It's almost like you know the more you do it, the, the work gets harder and harder and harder. Whereas I can see friends or family members just sit in front of the TV, watch football, drink beer, and not worry about anything. It seems like they're not going through the, the you know, you almost get pissed off because you're like they're not doing any of the work on themselves. Um, I guess my take on it is whatever happened to moderation does not work anymore. Like it's moderation in spiritual in the spiritual. Well, it's almost like whether it's alcohol, lust, or anything, whatever, 
whatever the sen seven deadly sins of the psyche are, it's like there's no room for error. The more you, the more you, you delve into it, the more you try. And ethical discipline is something very militaristic, you could say. Right. It's a battle. It but is. by applying that teaching, we develop more equanimity, especially in the beginning when we're adjusting to knowing the causes of our suffering. It's painful to realize that we create all of our pain and that we are responsible for everything we do and then the reasons why we suffer. For instance, when I was explaining my job at uh, working as a middle school teacher, for one, at one point I was at, you know, my mind wanted to blame these kids. Well, they just don't want to learn. But then I had an experience internally in the dream state where I was shown black birds. And a bird, as I mentioned to you, is thought. Because the mind is aerial in nature, relates to wind, breath, air, and there, you know, my actually it was Samai Vera who was showing me that symbol. It was showing me, no, your mental state being negative is attracting that criticism from your kids, and therefore, you're right in being and judged by them. And I returned to my body, and I was thank thankful. It says he's showing me something that I need to change, and that I can't blame them for anything they do. Yeah, they could be negative, and but I can be kind in response, and that will neutralize much of that conflict. But yeah, in the beginning, when we are learning to look inside, it's a battle. And we gain more equilibrium and stamina in this work by continuing to do it. And it takes a lot of discipline, especially in the beginning, to curtail negative thought, negative feeling. And as many scriptures state, we cannot give any inch to anger, to fear, etc. But... Uh, we gain strength the more we apply this science. And we cease to not be filled with despair. And of course, there's moments of darkness and suffering that every initiate goes through. You listen to Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, his piece about um, his spiritual night that he went through, where he was a very high master who was tested, where they stopped giving him those experiences. And therefore, he composed in music his sorrow, his pain, so even great masters go through that type of conflict. But what guides them through those dark moments in their journey is precisely having faith and recalling the qualities of God and knowing that the divine is always with us. But we have to be tested and tried. Like Nietzsche says in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, uh, he was a German philosopher who he knew this teaching in depth. He said, you only know the spark of the spirit but you do not see the anvil it is and all the cruelty of its hammer. Uh, God is, I'm referring to the God Thor, God of war, you know, hammering the steel, you know, first putting us in hot fire and hammering us, and tempering us until the soul is perfected. We face ordeals because we have to confront our own negativity. Or an ordeal is basically you have a situation that's very problematic, a conflict, which provokes a lot of negativity. And yet we have to be mindful of that, see, look at it, what are the causes that are provoked? And then go home and reflect, well, what did I see? And to work on what we see didactically. This is a psychological teaching. But of course, upon finding these studies, we are tested. We're given ordeals. And those are the, goes back to the parable of the birds devouring the seeds. And many people uh, struggle and lose that conflict because they get devoured by their own negativity, their own thinking, or the thorns of slander or criticism. Not only for others, but for themselves. But we have to face trial and error. And we fail many times, over and over again. We will get, we'll, we'll get up, we'll get knocked down. It's a, it's a war. 
But if you're persistent and you remember God, you'll get through it. And Moses did it, Buddha did it, Jesus did it. It's a war for your soul. Yeah. It really is. Have you ever heard people in the beginning who would start the, I think the first step from what I'm taking from these this last month and a half or, is self-awareness. You become aware. And I think I mentioned once, I became aware that more than an hourly basis, if something negative came up, I had to catch it. Have you ever heard people who begin this process begin to say, well, it doesn't seem to be getting any better? Well, many people face that. Because uh, I mean, the, problem is, the problem is what's lacking is insight. Now, whether one is a, a high initiate or a beginner, there's always going to be suffering to a degree. The question is, do we comprehend the causes of our suffering? And in those moments of trial, we have to learn to be patient. And, uh, you know, I can think of a couple quotes related to that. From you know, Nietzsche had a very beautiful way of explaining this science. Um, he says that uh, there will come a time in which all that is divine and holy to you will be, seem like a, a ghost and will frighten you. And you will say all is false in despair. Because, you know, we feel abandoned. Like Jesus said on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama samnachani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus. He's the highest master we know of uh, in terms of hierarchy. And yet he even said in the moment on the cross, you know, my God, where are you? But he remembered God and he prayed and he conquered. And if you listen to, uh, you know, in those moments of trial and when we suffer, we can listen to good music. Personally, when I go through ordeals, I listen to good classical music by masters like Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Beethoven especially. Do you listen to Rachmaninoff? I like Rachmaninoff. Uh, but, you know, in terms of hierarchy amongst the musicians, Beethoven and Wagner are, are very, very high. You know, listen to the music of, you know, people associate Wagner with Nazis and, of course, a misappropriation of Nietzsche's teaching. But, you know, the Ride of the Valkyria are precisely the warrior woman fighting for God, or Wotan. And they are, it's a very famous song which, uh, which has been misappropriated, sadly, but it's a warrior song of the soul marching for Christ and combating all that is evil within oneself. And, of course, these warrior women are representatives of qualities of our own soul. And you can listen to Holst's Planets, if you listen to the piece on Mars, uh, opening classical piece. And I could show you, perhaps in another lecture, we can play that piece, but, you know, shows you the type of willpower you need to fight against degeneration. And it isn't a war of anger, of violence, physical violence, but a spiritual war in which, through peace and comprehension, you conquer that which is impure. And we learn to really overcome those challenges by learning to meditate. Close your physical eyes, retrospect in your mind, visualize, try to imagine the difficulties you're facing. See it in your mind's eye. What did you do? What did you say? What happened? And we, we're going to give many explanations about that process in the coming weeks. Well, in true esoteric Freemasonry, I remember Manly P. Hall said in order to get to the 33rd degree, you had to know one thing. And the one thing that you had to know was if one suffers, if, if, if one suffers, we, we all suffer. Exactly, because if we cease to, if we ignore the suffering of others, especially when we're in pain, right. um, we can't transcend the problem. For, and I, I'm thinking of certain ordeals that I had in my job where certain kids were problematic, 
and causing me a lot of suffering. And then I'm realizing, well, they're, they are who they are and they're responsible. They need to be responsible for who they are. But my own resentment, my own anger, I need to change what I can. And by conquering that and comprehending those faults of my own, I've been able to be kind to these students. And even when they've been cross with me and very negative, I've neutralized certain things. And that's given me more faith to overcome those challenges. So we do it little by little. And to get out of those ruts, we have to remember the suffering of others. What about marriage? Yeah, they're tight. When you talk about marriage and the Gnostics talk about marriage, they're, they're talking about love. They're not talking about the piece of paper. Exactly. Okay, I just want to... Because, yeah, because people think marriage... <laughs> uh, yeah. People think marriage is paperwork. But some island viewers said that yeah. modern, modern marriage is with paperwork is this legal prostitution. Because these couples are joining in matrimony for lust, not for love. You look at the divorce rate in America, you see the results. Now, now this is my first experience trying to learn anything in the Gnostic traditions and what it is. And I was listening to your lecture. You mentioned about love and uh, unity and um, what is necessary to, to be a, a partner and love. And you mentioned man and woman. Is that a Gnostic way? There is no, there is no homosexuality in Gnostic teachings? Can that love exist between a woman and a woman? Well, a man and a man? Good question. Biologically speaking... Uh, we know that the physical male counterpart maintains the male potential. Likewise, woman with woman, the female energy. And as we know that Jehovah, the name of God, is Yahava, meaning masculine, feminine. Those two polarities manifest within a, uh, the physical man and physical wife as well. To create physically, to create a spirit, uh, physical child needs a man and woman. Sure. But to create a spiritual being you also need man and woman too. The, a male with a male or a female with a female doesn't possess the creative potential to create that spiritual element. Is it referring to that instead of the actual Well, in terms of, the, in terms of a hermaphrodite, uh, we can say that a hermaphrodite, uh, a being that has fully integrated male-female, is an angel. A being that has, through a matrimony, physically, like any one of us, we learn to work with the opposite sex so that we have that power physically and also spiritually to create. And then when we fully perfected ourselves, those two, those two uh, principles are fully manifest. Because an angel is a perfect human being. But to become an angel, we need to have both polarities, even physically, to create uh, not only just a physical child, but spiritually speaking too. Well, the whole brain is... The, the left brain right. is the sacred masculine, the right brain is the sacred feminine, and you want to come together in the middle, which is the you know the prefrontal cortex, the third eye. So we all we all have the sacred feminine. You know, all males have the sacred feminine. All females have the sacred ma- masculine in them. And uh, you know, we do have we could say the divine mother within us. Yeah. Divine mother Kundalini, and also we have the divine father within us too. But in order to march to those heights. Physically, we have to work with where we're at, meaning a husband physically needs a wife, sexually speaking. needs that actual counterpart to complement the male. Likewise, the male needs that feminine counterpart so that those energies which are aroused physically can create something spiritual. And as Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. Meaning the flesh can give birth, man and wife can give birth to a physical child, but to give birth to a spiritual child, we need same energy, same act, but 
manifested in a in a different way. And uh, we're not against homosexuals. We don't uh, condemn individuals. So that means that even the love that they share, that can create some sort of spiritual energy, but it can't create a spiritual being. Well, uh, we could say that uh, that energy uh, between a man and woman is what bases that develops our uh, spiritual life, precisely. And men and men and women and women cannot obtain that. Cannot reach that level. Oh, uh, man and man cannot, and woman and woman cannot. But uh, man and wife is what creates spiritual life as well. Okay. But we're not against those teachings. Well, uh, I personally, I don't f- choose that path because, uh, as Jesus says, straight is the gate of the spinal medulla in which that energy can rise up to the brain. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, spiritual life. And few there be that find it. Life in Hebrew relates to chaya. And in Judaism we say l'chayim, to life. Chaya is, uh, relates to, we could say, our sexual organs because we give life physically through sex. But also spiritual life, if we know how to take to not be tempted by that energy, like Adam and Eve in the garden. We transform Chava and raise it to our brain, represented by Adam, and that up the spine, which is the path that the Kundalini of the Divine Mother rises up our spinal medulla to our brain in order to illuminate it. But uh, homosexuality cannot create spiritual life, but it does create certain elements which are uh, contrary to the divine elements. And if you were interested, you could look into, uh, the Zohar has a lot of teachings about that, about how homosexuality is uh, the opposite of creating spiritual, but something else, something inferior. And of course, a lot of people, people who are, you know, homosexual or gay, um, of course, don't like to hear that. It's just like Jesus says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And people who are attached to their um, customs may not want to change, but that's their choice. And personally, um, we don't condemn homosexuals, but we point out homosexuality. Well, you cannot create, just as you cannot create a child physically, you cannot create spiritually within you without having that counterpart, that complement. And we need both man and woman to reach that full potential. Yeah, and the problem is what you just said if you were to say that to a forum of people, they would say, oh, it would be all politically incorrect. Well, that's, that's, that's the birds eating up the seeds, yeah. so to speak, devouring the, you know, the minds. Oh, I don't like this. But, you know, right. the thing is, yeah, I, remember, uh, I remember hearing about how the Dalai Lama, he's a great master, Gnostic teacher, was giving a lecture before a, an audience, a homosexual community, and they asked him, can one be homosexual and Buddhist? And he said, kindly, but firmly, no, you can't. And, of course, they uh, were hissing at him, which um, was their choice. But uh, if we want to create, as we mentioned, even spiritually, is uh, matrimony needed. And I don't mean papers. I mean when a man loves a woman and there's divine communion between them, both in the world of thought, feeling, and will, then we can develop genuine mysticism within us. To learn more about
about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at ChicagoGnosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.